Hello. Welcome to Free Your Children on WXRQ 1460 AM Christian Radio. I am your host, Tiffany Boyd, and my mission here at Free Your Children is to share the truth and love about education. There's a battle raging against the souls of our nation's children, and I hope this ministry equips you for battle. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, 10 through 11. I want to thank our sponsor, Safe Storage. If you have storage needs and you're in the Middle Tennessee area, you can contact them at safestoragetn.com. If you are interested in sponsoring Free Your Children, you can send me an email at freeyourchildren at gmail.com and I can send that information to you. There's also a donate button located over on my Facebook, my website, freeyourchildren.com. And that those donations help for your children be able to accomplish all the amazing ministry outlets that we have here at for your children currently right now what we're working on are a series of seminars that we are bringing to the public so if you're interested in donating to that um you can find that donation button over on the website you can also find me on instagram Facebook, email, of course. I'm also a monthly contributor to the Borough Pulse. That's B-O-R-O-P-U-L-S-E.com. You can put in my name, Tiffany Boyd, and my author page comes up over there on the Pulse. And you can read all of the articles that I have penned to date that speak about education. And there's a lot going on in the educational world right now. Which brings me to our guest tonight that I would like to introduce his name is John Kleizek, and John has an MA in English and has taught college rhetoric and research argumentation for over a decade. His literary scholarship concentrates on the history of global eugenics and Aldous Huxley's dystopic novel, Brave New World. Kleizek is the author of School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education, and he is a contributor to Unlimited Hangout. New Politics, the Center for Research on Globalization, the Activist Post, and many other publications. In addition, he holds a black belt in classical taekwondo, and he is a certified kickboxing instructor. Welcome. Thank you for joining us, John. Thanks so much for having me, Tiffany. Happy How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. Well, you? you're a busy man. I'm doing well. We've had storms in our area the last couple of days, so hopefully we won't have any problems with that while we're doing our show. But tell us, John, let's just jump right into this. Naysayers like to call us conspiracy theorists. <laughs> so can you explain to our listeners what exactly is the globalization of education and why should people be concerned about it? Um, so we could boil that down to a few different aspects. So one has to do with uh, global governance institutions and their global pro uh, curriculum programs, such as uh, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, that's UNESCO. Mm -hmm. uh, that's These programs are helped uh, with funding from World Bank, IMF, et cetera. And then these uh, interlock with other uh, non-governmental organizations that take the round table form. So these include your World Economic Forum, uh, your Bilderberg Group, et cetera. And so these sort of provide the global institutional infrastructure to um, uh, 
facilitate global curriculum. Um, and then there's the aspect of global, public, private, big tech partnerships. So basically education, technology corporations, uh, multinational corporations that contract with uh, various nation state uh, educational uh, programs. And uh, then you also actually have the globalization of teachers unions through something called uh, Education International, which is a global union. Uh, and it also uh, partners with the World Economic Forum. So you sort of have a nexus of various institutions that help facilitate uh, sort of the uh, centralized global curriculum that's uh, codified through the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, in particular SDG number four. Mm -hmm. Well, you've written a book on this extensive topic. Tell us about your book and why people need to be informed about this. The book uh, can be broken down into two broader aspects. So the first one has to do with the corporatization of education in the United States that takes the form of charter schooling and other public-private partnerships such as uh, voucher programs and education savings accounts, tax credits for tuition, anything that funnels uh, public dollars into private edu corporations. Um, and then the second aspect of the book looks uh, at how the ways that these public-private technology partnerships sort of facilitate the corporatization. Uh, and then from there, the book breaks down a sort of a series of different technology, education technologies that are used to data mine students. This uh, includes adaptive learning courseware, social-emotional biofeedback wearables. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's another uh, burgeoning trend called Decision education, which has to do with personalizing uh, education based on a student's uh, DNA or their genetics, particularly their genetic IQ. Uh, and then towards the end of the book, I get into brain-computer interfaces uh, and uh, artificial intelligence, uh, tutor bots, and, and how all the data from the adaptive learning courseware and the social-emotional biofeedback wearables is used to uh, develop the AI and to ultimately interface the children with the AI and the, through the Internet of Things in a social credit system that would use also use that student data to basically uh, permit or restrict their access to the public square and commercial services, everything from healthcare, or transportation, education, jobs, housing, uh, you name it. Right. Wow. That's a lot. How did you get interested in all this? What piqued your interest or made you delve deep into this world of globalization? Um, well, the ed tech aspect, really, I, I sort of got into that. I was working for an online tutoring company, and at a certain point, uh, they let us know that they were going to have IBM's Watson uh, co-pilot with us. So uh, for those that don't know, IBM's Watson, it's an artificial intelligence program that uh, traffics and everything from uh, risk assessment, uh, healthcare, uh finance and also education and, and it also uses the adaptive learning algorithms uh and so i sort of you know surmised that well every day i go to work uh as this online tutor i'm basically training uh the the ibm watson to replace me and uh at the, at the time there was there was some other uh, pushes for privatization of education in my my home state of illinois uh, and that sort of, uh, it, during this time, it, a lot of the stuff that Charlotte Thompson Iserbeet had talked about uh, was popping up, that being, right, the computerization of education and the corporatization of education through school choice. So at that point, I just, uh, first I wrote one article sort of uh, 
looking at the, the situation with the school choice in the state of Illinois. And then I sort of turned that article into a series of articles that became book chapters. And then uh, eventually what, what was intended to be a 72 page book turned into 500 because mm -hmm. I, I had, hadn't realized I thought a lot of the ed tech stuff that I had sort of surmised and speculated on was um, was sort of down the pipe. But uh, lo and behold, actually, it, a lot of this stuff is actually old hat and it's we're just getting to the commercialization phase at this point. So that ed tech section uh, ballooned out into many hundreds of pages. Right. And, and a lot of people don't realize that this is not a new initiative. This has been they've been sounding the alarm about this for decades. And I know that you just brought up Charlotte's name there. You knew Charlotte personally, correct? Yeah, correct. OK. And we're speaking about Charlotte Isabel. Could you tell us why her work was so important then and now and why why do you think she was so passionate about sounding the alarm about the globalization of education sure um pr probably what i would say was one of the most important things that she did and, and was most germane to the thesis of my book is uh her leaking of something called project vest so it's basic education skills through technology it was a, a plan uh, that the Department of Education had cooked up during the Ronald Reagan administration. She was actually uh, worked for the Reagan administration. She was the senior policy advisor for the Office of Educational Research and Improvement. Uh, and she stumbled onto this project best, which was uh, going to facilitate public-private partnerships between the Department of Education, uh, state and local school agencies, and uh, technology corporations that would facilitate um, workforce training curriculums through operant conditioning algorithms. So taking B.F. Skinner's method of psychological conditioning and basically uh, computerizing it and automating it. And that's basically the, the, the entire program for, for what we're looking at in this uh, burgeoning fourth industrial revolution. Yeah. Um, it would later, you know, when she wrote the deliberate dumbing down of a America, she largely focused on the federalization of education. Uh, she she did come across the Office of School Choice, uh, the school choice programs when she was there at um, at the department. Uh, that was one of the offices where she had uh, worked. So, you know, the whole school choice thing was always on her radar since the since its inception, which actually right. starts with Albert Shanker, who is the first uh, who is the president of the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, one of the, the second largest teachers union in the in the United States, um, and uh, so when when the school choice movement got really big, she was uh, very vocal against that as well. Uh, the only thing that really I hadn't touched on that that she another uh, education program that she covered quite a bit that's important to understand is the community schooling project was which is yes. basically other basket of public private partnerships through what they call wraparound services mm -hmm. so those public private partnerships between the school and it could be the healthcare industry it could be any in demand industries for career pathways um it could also be um you know criminal justice prevention programs through community oriented policing to prevent at risk students from falling through the cracks yep all encompasses what's called lifelong learning so this also in, in, incorporates not just schooling for children but right um you know postgraduate and into your into your elder years yep. whether retraining or recreational and then there's always a data mining component so in mm -hmm. order to uh, 
facilitate the the appropriate community-based projects for wh whatever local area you happen to be in. They have to keep track of all that data. So in terms of how the students are performing on their workforce training and where they're at in terms of their their uh, health status, et cetera. So that she's basically, she basically covered the entire basket uh, and was was way ahead of her time as, yes. as far as uh, what she saw coming. Absolutely. I agree with that. There have been, um, you know, I am currently offering seminars and one of the focuses of the, the seminars that I have been um, sharing with people, the information that I've been sharing, focuses on Charlotte's work that she did and the fact that she laid out this plan, you know, she revealed what the plan was and it has been, it has been implemented and is being implemented right now. And funny, you should bring up community schools. I just penned an article for the Borough Pulse about community schools. The state that we live in, Tennessee, is fully invested in that community school model, as is the nation. I mean, it's already, you know, there's, there's money coming from everywhere to promote these agendas. So she nailed it. She called it and it is coming to fruition as we speak. So why do you think this march toward globalization has continued? Well, a lot of it is because, you know, a lot of these partnerships with uh, global governance institutions like UNESCO were mm -hmm. almost seemed ceremonial in the early phases. So, you know, UNESCO was uh, set up, I believe the UNESCO, its purpose and its philosophy was founding document uh mm -hmm. was published in 1946 so a lot of largely you know when when schools would adopt unesco's policy or curriculum language it didn't you didn't necessarily see uh it wasn't necessarily reflected in any huge upheavals and changes uh you know at the at the local school where you might have uh you know brought your kids um, it's really been, um, you know, sort of a series of just putting together the the legal infrastructure, sort of uh, adopting the language of these global policies, uh, and it's really only been visible in the in the wake of uh, all all things post twenty twenty, all things right. post lockdown. I mean, at this point, you know, just as a you know as an example, we saw that. You know, once the uh, once they declared the pandemic emergency, we were effectively under World Health Organization uh, control, right? I mean, right. because it it was the it was the World Health Organization that called it the pandemic first, and then it right. was right, us and other nations that followed. Uh, so it's I mean, it's an example of how right those treaties and agreements were already there. It's just that it, they don't really show their teeth until you have an inflection point, and so. Uh, now that, you know, when they locked everybody down and forced everybody on their screens all day and night, uh, mm -hmm. we, not only did we see the the blossoming of the ed tech industry that was sort of uh, cooking under the surface for some time, but we also saw, uh, you know, a lot of, for the first time, many, many parents saw what exactly uh, had been changed in terms of the curriculum. Right, exactly. I, I said that if nothing else good came of that situation, it really gave parents a bird's eye view into what was really going on in terms of what their children were being taught. Yeah, talk, yeah, but yeah, let, let's talk about assessments. Why should parents be concerned about their children taking these assessments and surveys and what are they doing with that data? So, um, the, the most of the assessments uh, nowadays are largely 
moving towards towards automation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in other words, you know, your your assessments are taken in the form of data mining through various uh, ed tech products, whether they again be the adaptive learning courseware or any other widgets that might plug into your uh, LMS or learning management system. And most of what's looked at here is uh, effectively psychometrics. Yeah. And uh, these psychometrics, uh, they fall under what are called competencies. So there's a whole uh, basket of pedagogies that fall under something called competency-based education mm -hmm. and ties in with something called outcomes-based education. Mm -hmm. Outcomes-based education uh, actually comes out of something called PPBS, which is public uh, pro planning, programming, and budgeting systems. It was developed by the uh, Department of Defense, and then, uh, first by the RAND Corporation, then used by the Department of Defense, then sort of outsourced as a, as a method of uh, central planning for all the various uh, offices, departments, and other aspects of uh, civil society. And so the outcomes are going to be basically of two kinds. One is going to what I call the political and the economic. So the political has to do with training the students to uh, to basically adopt the um, what what today we call woke uh, identity. Right. Yeah. <laughs> basically, the new civics, right? Instead of right. you know, teaching the students to uh, adopt the principles of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, individual mm -hmm. liberty. Uh, traditional Christian values, et cetera, right? They, they replace that with uh, the intersectional critical theory, identity politics. And then at the other end of the spectrum is the economic competencies or outcomes. Uh, and those are basically workforce training skills. Right. Um, and then something that sort of falls in the middle, which is the, the what they call the social emotional learning competencies. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are things like uh, self-reflection, uh, team building and things like that. Or these very vague uh, emotional uh, qualities uh, that sort of dovetail with uh, the, the various uh, woke identity politics yeah. uh, sort of also overlap with the with the workforce competency. So, uh, you know, the, what's funny is I've looked at a lot of the CBE stuff and, you know, when you look for the, and they talk a lot about workforce competencies and career competencies, but if you've ever, if you've ever tried to find a list of like workforce competencies that would be practical skills for a particular industry, they're it's very hard pressed to find anything. Uh, you, you, but you do frequently run into um the the um the social emotional competencies uh right. and sort of substitute for the workforce competency so you know in a future where everything's going to be more or less automated it seems like the main competencies that they that they need whether it's for uh, for conditioning you for the uh you know the new form of woke civics or the uh workforce development is the social emotional learning competencies which is basically putting your 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 child into a, a sort of a, a, a digital caste system based on uh, their psychometrics and based on how they respond to these different assessments. So ultimately, it's basically the data is being used to psychologically profile the the students right. uh, and to condition them to be malleable uh, for you know to be global citizens in a globally planned economy. And interestingly enough, when this the ESSER funding was coming, you know, into the schools, one of the conditions of that ESSER funding was that they had to implement 
an SEL program. And I actually went and spoke in opposition of the program to our local school board, which they ultimately adopted. But, um, you know, I took the professional development packet for that particular school board to see, you know, exactly what they were going to be voting in if they did indeed pass this program, which they did. And so there's a lot of money tied to these SEL programs and they are pervasive. They are in everything and in every subject. I mean, they've made sure that they've permeated the school day with SEL from beginning to end. Yeah, it's basically the, the like I said, it's basically the main uh, competency that you see. Uh, mm -hmm. Even when they were referenced the whole uh, the workforce training uh, agenda, right? And you know, but these are not academic competencies, right? These right. Are academic skills, right? These are these right. effective dispositions uh, that they deem to be politically correct. Right. Well, you know, there are a lot of people that don't understand why the workforce training model is bad. In Tennessee, they're calling it innovative schools. And I've shared information about the workforce training model. Um, I've written about it over on the Borough Pulse. Why is this not harmless? And what is really the intended purpose of this workforce training initiative? Well, it's important to distinguish it from vocational. Yes. <laughs> Uh, you know, like apprenticeship program, right? Yeah, polytechnical voc ed. Mm -hmm. Back then, you know, you basically, you know, you would they were very much like apprenticeships, so right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Working to develop a particular skill uh, under somebody who you know has had knowledge and experience in that particular field. Um, and then you would be able to take that skill and potentially be an entrepreneur with it. Right. You go on and, you know, start your own outfit. Um, but with the with the corporate workforce training through the career pathways, through the public-private partnerships between uh, the companies and the schools, you're you're basically uh, you're you're basically being trained to fulfill job quotas for multinational corporations with with no uh no, no incentive for them to sort of uh, tr train the students in any way that would make them entrepreneurs, to make them competitive, right? Uh, where they could start their own businesses. Uh, and then the other side of it is that I mean, so this gets back to the whole outcomes-based education, right? So basically, mm -hmm. you're just you're being trained to fill the corporate uh, job quotas. But but also, you know, the government quotas in terms of what they think they need for the, the planned economy. Um, and at the same time, you know, you're effectively subsidizing uh, the companies who, who right. would, when they would otherwise be spending their own money to train their uh, their labor force in house. Uh, basically, they're taking your public tax dollars, funneling it into a school that's going to uh, narrow down. The curriculum to so that they can uh, be able to perform a very narrow range of uh, job tasks for these multinational companies. So it's not an upward mobile, upwardly mobile um, form of of career ed or voc ed, and it's basically just consolidates more monopolized power in the the corporate corporations that have these public private partnerships with the government schools. Right. I believe that it limits educational opportunities for students because it's pigeonholing them from as early as elementary school into a projected 
career pathway. And I mean, how many elementary school children do you know that really have a firm grasp on what they want to be when they grow up? Right. And the other thing is, you know, how, how many, you know, myself included, you know, students uh, don't don't get their act together until later right. in life. So, you know, you start right. tra- tracking this data early on. Uh, you start creating this psychological profile and this this algorithm that puts them on the trajectory towards this narrowly defined career path. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is all based on not exactly necessarily their uh, full potential, except that the way those algorithms work is that if one day you know Johnny or Susie uh, you know gets their act together and they start to perform at a higher level, uh, they still have to undo all of right. the other data that says that they should be tracked into this lower uh, career path. And so, right. you know, what, so the amount of time it would take to basically uh, tip this, tip, tip the algorithmic scales to uh, to switch that path for you, uh, would, would you know possibly be almost impossible. Right. right? Exactly. Especially exactly. Not doing so if you were sort of you know not taking it seriously for you know maybe all the way up to most of high school which right which I (laughs) exactly yeah I mean that's that's common you know with kids and and you know it just really boils my blood to think that the government thinks that they can get away with this and of course parents don't a lot of them um, don't even understand that this is happening they're not even aware of it so it's people like myself and you um, who are trying to educate the public and warn them that this is really the agenda and this is what's going on tell our listeners john why is school choice a trap um so it's pitched as sort of the solution to the you know government control of education and um so it's it's pitched as you know it's given the veneer of a conservative alternative to federalized education except that it's just another form of federalized education actually it's it's worse in 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 many ways because uh basically what you're doing is if so let's say school choice entails the public private charter schools uh, and the voucher programs are the two biggest ones. Uh, right. So the public-private charter school, it's a private corporation uh, that's going to get uh, public tax dollars uh, funneled into it. Well, when you take the tax dollars, whether federal or state, those it's going to come with federal and or state strings attached to it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> the government money, it becomes a government school, right? The same right. thing with the voucher. If you get the voucher money, uh, and you take it to, say, a religious school, which I just saw a, a headline not too long ago where I believe it's a Catholic school. Yeah, I saw that, too. Yes. It's one of the first uh, Catholic schools to um, to to be able to take uh, public government vouchers and uh, and enroll students with that money. Uh, so in this instance, right, it's not a private corporation that's getting uh, subsidized with uh, public tax dollars, but it is. A private institution, which again, right? If it's if it wants to keep that money, it's going to have to change uh, some of its curriculum, some of its exactly. policies to facilitate the uh, the mandates of the Department of Education. Um, and, and with the with the charter school in particular, uh, the the 
greater problem and also the private schools to a certain extent is that there's no elected board. It so absolutely as, as much as our elected school boards, uh, you know, have been filled with people that we might not uh, agree with in terms of the policies they've set. We at least have some uh, civil recourse. You could still right. vote them out. Uh, exactly. The charter school or the private school, you have you have a corporate board or a board of trustees that are not elected, which means they have no incentive uh, to listen to anything you say, uh, especially since they're already getting private tuition from, uh, you know, the bulk of their uh, uh, population, but also mm-hmm. are subsidized uh, with with uh, tax dollars. Exactly. So, so it's worse because it has ever, it has all the bad things of the federal government schools uh, minus any uh, civil accountability. Right. I agree. I, I like to say that it's it's a great example of taxation without representation. Yeah. And, you know, I, I saw a thing with uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, the other day. He did an interview with um, Patrick Bet David and he said, I'm school choice on steroids. And he says, the first thing I'll do is I'll get rid of the Department of Education and then I'll take that 80 billion dollars. And I'll send it to the state so that they can do what they want with it and we can get the the students into the schools that they need. Well, the only thing about that, not the only thing, but the thing that stands out to me is that if you get rid of the Department of Education, but you still keep the $80 billion in federal money that's going to go to the states, it's just changing the name of the the Department of Education. You're not actually getting rid of that federal agency. You're just taking taking its budget and and putting it under a different label but it's going to yes. be the exact same system so i just i wanted to point that out because it, it it's subtle if you don't if you don't know how how it all works together it almost right. sounds like he's he's actually going to do something different he's it, it would be no different it would just be right. semantic well you know that's that's what the education system in general is really good at it are you know they like to use semantics to be able to i feel like um hoodwink the public into believing that, you know, all the educational issues are going to be solved by all of these, you know, wonderful programs. And what we see is just a continual march toward globalism and the pervasive spreading of communism that seems to be um, happening, you know, in our nation. And we have so many conservatives that have bought into this lie of school choice, and they are um, sponsoring these bills, you know, in legislators or legislatures across the United States, and and they are in full support of this. And we have to educate the masses on why this is going to lead to the destru- destruction um, of our freedoms if we don't start listening and 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 making decisions accordingly. Yeah, as you point out, it, it's in order to untangle the mess, you, you do have to uh, become learned about the way that they use semantics. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, the, the entirety of educational policy language is, is a huge alphabet soup of loaded terms, right. Of dog whistles. Right. So, you know, when you start talking, when you talk about sustainable this or community-based that or social emotional this or competency-based that, right? This is a, it doesn't mean what the word means at the diction level, right? If you go and grab a dictionary and read what that word means in the basic sense of its of its grammatical meaning, that's not what it means when it's used in an educational policy document, right? right. It entails all the, all the wonderful things that we've covered uh, thus far and more. Right, right. Well, listen, 
I appreciate all the work that you're doing. Tell our listeners where they can find your book, where they can find you for more information. Um, so my website is schoolworldorder.info and that has links to all my social media, all the articles that I've written. There's a link to my book, uh, which you can get at Trine Day Books, uh, Trine Day Publishing. Um, and you can get it on Amazon as well, but you know, if you can get it from Trine Day, always better. And, uh, that's the quickest way to find me and all my stuff. Fantastic. And I will have all of those links over on my Free Your Children Facebook page as well when this interview airs. I want to thank Safe Storage again for sponsoring tonight's show. If you live in the Middle Tennessee area, Columbia, Mount Pleasant, or Hohenwald and have storage needs, you can reach Safe Storage at safestoragetn.com. And I want to leave you with this. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 4, 24. Remember, we love you here at WXRQ, but Jesus loves you so much more. Good night, and God bless.